Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we just want to thank you for the privilege of being able to assemble together in your name. We ask that you would take each part of this service. We pray that you would remind us that we don't sing these songs for our enjoyment, but we sing them to worship you. We pray that the words would tune our hearts to hear your word preached in just a few moments. We pray for the special music, each part of what is to go on right now, that would be done in worship to you. We pray that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to work in our hearts and lives. And when all is said and done, you will get honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be. I'd ask that you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17, a somewhat familiar story uh, in the Bible where we're going to start this morning. And the question that I want us to ask and the question I want us to think about and ask the Holy Spirit of God to allow us to answer it honestly today is what will it take? And then you fill in the blank. And we're going to look at several different passages this morning. The first here is in 1 Kings chapter 17. If you'll remember the context, God had told Elijah to go to wicked King Ahab and said, there's not going to be any rain, there's not going to be any dew until I say so. Thus saith the Lord. Now, when Elijah made that statement... He was putting himself in a very tight spot. If a prophet said, thus saith the Lord, and it did not come to pass, God said that prophet is a false prophet and should be put to death. Now, Elijah said, there's not going to be any rain. There's not going to be any dew until I say so. Now, if there was any rain or any dew before Elijah said so, Elijah would be guilty of death. But God had already told Elijah. Elijah prayed. Read James chapter 5. God answered Elijah's prayer because he was praying according to the will of God. Amen. And as he prayed, there was no rain. And God said, I want you to go down to this little brook called Cherith and you're going to hide there from uh, wicked King Ahab. And it said he caused, caused the ravens to bring him food. And uh, we could just use a little imagination there. You could imagine as um, Ahab talks to his cook and says, I want some nice big steaks made up this afternoon. He puts them on the grill and here comes a raven. Takes one off and flies it down to Elijah. Amen. Uh, the Lord provided him food. I don't think it was what ravens eat because... Jewish people, according to the law of God, were not allowed to eat what ravens eat. Amen? It was good stuff. God always provides, does he not? And one of the verses that we skip over, because we want to spend some time with one of those lesser-known people in the Bible, we call her the widow at Zarephath because we don't know her name. And in verse 9, people skip over this verse. God tells, verse 8, let's start there. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Now, do you get what God is saying here to Elijah? 
He's saying, I have contact, I have talked to, and I have commanded a widow lady there in this city, and she is going to provide for you. Now that tells me something about this widow. God doesn't talk to people he doesn't know or are not interested in following him. Amen? Don't be worried about what the world is doing. You be worried about what God wants you to do. Amen? And so God had already made contact here with this widow woman. Now, when there's a famine in the land, this was before the days of social programs. This was before the days of supermarkets. Uh, they didn't have any big trucks to haul food into the area because they hadn't been invented yet. The food was grown in that area and consumed in that area, and if there was no food to be grown in that area, people did not eat. Now, most of us in this room could probably stand to miss a meal or two. But if you had to grow everything that you ate, let me tell you something, you couldn't afford to miss too many meals because you couldn't grow that much food. But there was no food. The widows starved. Many of them would die. It was three and a half years before the rain came. And God called this woman, and Elijah shows up, and I've often joked that we know that there were Baptists in the Old Testament because the lady said, all I have is a handful of meal and just a little bit of oil, just enough to make one little pancake for me and my son, and we're going to starve. And Elijah said, bring me some first. So we know there had to be Baptists in the Old Testament. Amen. Because you say, that, that was unright of Elijah to ask that. No, it wasn't because he had a promise from God. Amen. He said, if you'll make me some first, God's going to perform a miracle and there'll be meal in the barrel and there'll be oil in the cruise until God sends rain on the earth. He's going to feed you, but I want you to step out by faith and give me a little first. Now you think the next morning, well, actually, it was later that day. She went back to make something for herself. And there was flour in the barrel. She said, I used up the last of the oil. I bet there's nothing in Oh, hey, there's some in here. She got up the next morning for breakfast. Guess what? There was something in the barrel. I used up the oil last night. Let's see. Up oh, there's, wait a minute. Where's all this coming from? Well, look what it says here. Let's just read the verse, and then we're going to go down here. In verse 16, And the barrel of meal wasted not, that means it never got empty, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord which he spake by Elijah. If you read the verse before it, it says, They did eat many days. But something tragic was about to happen. Look at the next verse here. 
Verse 18, verse 17, I'm sorry. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? Now, I want us to understand what was going on. Every day, Elijah, the widow, and her son were dependent upon a specific miracle from God so that they would have enough food to get through that day. And God performed those miracles every day. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that this widow believed in God? Amen? Wouldn't you agree with me? I mean, why would God have gone to her and commanded her in the first place to feed the prophet if, if she didn't have some willingness to obey and to follow God? She saw the miracles every day. But her son died. And her words are bitter. She said, why, why are you here? You, you, you man of God, you're, you're judging my sin. And of course, is there anybody without sin? Somebody said, oh, she must have been a great sinner. No, it said she was a widow. There was no great problems there other than what is in all of our lives. But I, I want to, we often ask the question, why does God allow these horrible things to happen to us? And I think the answer is in her answer to Elijah. Elijah didn't even understand what was going on. He takes the boy, look at his cry in verse 20. He said, and he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? He said, God, what are you doing here? She's doing a good thing and you're, you're, you're doing bad things to her. This is not the way it ought to be. And God brought that little boy back to life. God loves to do miracles. But I want you to look at verse 24. And this is our thought this morning. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this, I know that thou art a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in thy mouth. Did you get what she was saying? It wasn't until after her son died and through the work of prayer, he was raised back to life and no, this wasn't like happens on Benny Hinn and don't believe what you see on TV, all right? Uh, this was real. I mean, this boy was so sick. And listen, it takes time to get sick enough to die now, doesn't it? And she was there days watching her little boy waste away and the breathing get shallower and shallower until it stopped. And then she runs out weeping and says, you're here and you're the problem, Elijah. And Elijah takes that dead little boy's body up to his room and he says, God, why is this happening? And when it was all over, and she is now holding her little boy alive again, she says, now I know you're a man of God. 
Do you know what that tells me? She was living by miracles every day and still did not have a complete faith in God. That's a scary thought, isn't it? But the Bible talks about those who believe, but not to the saving of the soul. The Bible says that there's going to be many people who say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? There are going to be preachers in hell, my friend. There are going to be pastors in whatever uh, realm of the clergy that you want. Billy Sunday was a great Presbyterian preacher, and he said there'll be so many Baptists in hell, their feet will be sticking out the windows. And, and uh, that was just one of his flamboyant ways of getting across the truth. But I'll tell you what, don't be picky. They're all going to be there, all denominations, because you don't get saved because you're a member of a denomination. You get saved because you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to challenge you to really think about this passage this morning. You see, God's interested in one thing. He is interested in you believing in Him. He is interested in your faith being real in the real and the living God. He knew exactly what it would take for this woman to overcome herself, her bitterness, everything that had gone wrong with her life, and put her faith and trust in the living God. It would take her son to die and to be raised again for her to overcome herself. And I want to challenge you that God had a bigger plan than just feeding Elijah. He wanted to see this woman put her faith and trust in the God of Israel. But he had to take her through the valley of the shadow of death to get her there. They had to eat every day by miracle in order for God to begin that process of breaking her down and bringing her to a point to where she could finally get past herself. I'll tell you, the biggest obstacle to keeping people out of heaven is the reflection in the mirror. It is yourself. It's not some person that called themselves a Christian and turned out to be a hypocrite. That's an excuse. It's not the fact that you don't know, because I'll tell you what, the Bible is available today, amen? It, it's not the fact that my daddy told me this, and my granddaddy told me this, and, my, and I'm not changing. I'll tell you what the fact is. The fact is what goes on in your own heart. The fact is our stubborn, selfish wills that want to hold on to everything that we can, that want to determine what we're going to do with our lives. One of my favorite little jokes, and this joke has a lot of truth in it, and you've probably met somebody like this. 
I'm tired of all these rules and I'm tired of living under my parents no, tell me no and don't. I'm going to join the Marine Corps. Let me tell you something. If that's your attitude, don't join the Marine Corps, all right? They're going to tell you what to put on and how to put it on. They're going to tell you what to think and if you don't think what they want you to think, they're going to brainwash you and make you think what they want you to think. I mean, they want you to be a Marine. God says, listen, I'm not going to brainwash you. I'm not going to put you in boot camp and break you down to where you don't even know what your own name is so I can build you up and you can do what I want you to do. That's what they do in the Marine Corps boot camp. That's the whole goal of it. Because when the time of crisis comes, they don't want you thinking about mommy. They want you thinking about what you learn. Well, they don't want you thinking at all. They just want you doing what you were trained to do. Now, God isn't like that at all. God is offering his love to all mankind. And I've often had people say, well, Pastor, you, you can't really believe that Every person who's a member of Islam is not going to heaven. You, you can't believe that, can you? I'll say, why, why wouldn't I believe that? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And the Jesus of Islam is not the Jesus of the Bible. They are different people completely. Study what Islam teaches about Jesus. He didn't die on the cross. He didn't rise again from the dead. He's not the Son of God. He's just a great prophet. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's a different person. And you can't put your faith in a false Jesus and have a relationship with the true God. Amen? But I want you to understand something. God is not this vicious, selfish, mean God that sits in heaven all by himself and says, if they don't find out what I say in my Bible, they're going to hell. <laughs> I'm not going to tell them either. I want you to remember the story we just read. Zarephath belonged to Zidon. It was not a city of Israel. There's no evidence even when Jesus spoke of this very thing, that this widow woman was even a Jew. Because the people of Nazareth got so mad when he said, listen, during the time of the famine of Elijah, God didn't provide for any of the widows in Israel, but he went to Zarephath and he provided for her. And the people of Nazareth got really upset about that. He said, who do you think you are telling us these things? Jesus was just telling the truth, Amen. God did everything that it took for this woman to believe in the God of Israel. Months and months and months she went to that little barrel of meal that sat on the counter and reached in and there was more flour in it. A miracle. Didn't even need Ernest Angelie to pray about it. Amen. Oral Roberts to send his handkerchief. I mean, it happened all by the power of God. Not one television camera was there. 
When God does his miracles, he does them all by himself. Amen. But she still did not have a complete faith and a complete trust in God. God says, step two. Her son got sick. Instead of turning to God and putting her full faith and trust in him, she got upset at God and said, why are you doing this at me? Step three, her son died. That's the end of hope, my friend. That's the end of human intervention. But see, God always has step four. That little boy lived again. I just believe what the Bible says. God did what it took for this woman to be saved. And I want to challenge you to think about it this morning. I don't believe we can, with a group of this many people, have everyone truly saved in the group. I just don't believe that there's that much purity in the human heart. We deceive ourselves more than we deceive anything or anyone else. And as a pastor, as I stand in this pulpit week after week, and, and plead with you for your souls. I want you to understand something. God is much more interested in your salvation than you are. And He has done and will do everything in His power to bring you to a living faith in the living God. But Jesus still said, Straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few. There be that find it. He said, wide is the gate and broad is the way which leadeth unto destruction and many be that go in thereat. Is it a wonder every city in this country has a broad way? It's mockery of what Jesus was speaking about in the Bible. Man wants the broad way. And I'll tell you, if we could offer a life's career on Broadway or heaven, we'd have a line from here to the Hudson River and back wanting to get a career on Broadway. And there wouldn't be very many standing in the other line. Because we want what we can see. We want what we can hold. We want what we think will do us the best. But I want to challenge you today. God wants what's best for you. And that first thing is the salvation of your soul. I can't tell, how, tell you how many people over the years we've been here that have said... Nobody loves me. No, one, no one's ever really loved me. I mean, I think New York has got to be the loneliest city in the world. We have thousands that crowd into this city so they can be all alone in the midst of one of the most populated places on the face of the earth. I'm here to tell you that God loves you. God's willing to forgive you for every sin that you've ever sinned.
But you've got to get past yourself before you can accept the Savior. And I plead with you. God is not the problem with your salvation. You are. You say, how do I get saved? Oh, I'm glad you asked. All you do is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Philippian jailer, one of the most wicked men in the city of Philippi, he fell down on his knees and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas looked at him and said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only will it work for you, it will work for anybody that you know and your house. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's all there is to it. The problem with believing on Jesus is if I were to ask everyone in this room that could have a voice to speak, do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible? I don't think we get one negative answer. Because if you didn't believe the Jesus of the Bible, why would you be in a church with the name Open Door Bible Baptist Church? I mean, we believe in Jesus. But James tells us so to the devils and tremble. God did what it took for this widow woman to have a real and living relationship with God. I want to challenge you today, if you're not saved, God's already done everything that it takes. Will you just let him save you? Jesus told the story of two men that went to the temple to pray. We're not going to talk about the first guy because he didn't get saved. Second guy said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's not your prayer that saves you. It's God that saves you. All you do is surrender yourself to him. Now, I want us to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 14. I want you to stick your finger there. And then flip on a few pages to the book of Mark and chapter 6. You see, God's already done what it takes for you to be saved. But as Brother Wells talked about in, his, in the Sunday school time and in his slide display, I'll tell you, Many of us Christians really don't understand who Jesus is. I mean, all you need to do to get saved is understand He's the Savior, that He's God in the flesh. But that God wants to control every decision in every day. Wait, wait a minute, He wants to control me? Yes, He does. He wants to tell you what to do. He wants to tell you how to do it. And let me tell you why. Because he's got a little better idea of what's going on than you do. If you'll learn to trust him, your life will be much better than if you trust yourself. I promise you that. But in Matthew, in Mark chapter 6, let's, let's just set the context here. Mark chapter 6, John the Baptist had just been murdered by the wicked Herod. Verse 30, And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done 
and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. Now, how many of you have had a busy week? I mean, just a ridiculously busy week. Mine's been that way. I don't know. Anybody else been that way? I mean, it just, no time to breathe. Well, it wasn't quite as busy. I've always found time to eat. Amen. Even if I'm working, I can have a hammer in one hand and a sandwich in the other. We'll get that job done. Uh, but, I mean, it was busy. And Jesus said, let's, let's find a quiet place. And John the Baptist had just died. John the Baptist was well-beloved. Many of Jesus' disciples were also disciples of John. John was the forerunner. He was the one that announced Jesus' presence to the Jewish people and to the world. He was a great man. And they were looking forward to just a few moments of rest. Does anybody remember what happened? 5,000 people showed up. 5,000 men. There may have been as many as 10 or 12,000 people there. And Jesus teaches them all day long. Don't talk to me about how long I preached. Jesus preached all day long. Uh, and we won't do that to you. We'll have you out of here on time. But I mean, all day long, Jesus taught. And they were there saying, when are we going to get our break, Jesus? When are we going to take some rest? When, you, you said we were going to go privately. This ain't private, Lord. And it gets supper time. And one of them finally comes and pulls on Jesus' robe and says, Jesus, uh, don't you understand? I mean, it's, it's getting late. They've been here all day. They haven't had anything to eat. Uh, we don't have anything to feed them. There's no restaurants. McDonald's hasn't been invented yet. Uh, there's nothing out here. Uh, you need to send them out into the villages or they're not going to get anything to eat at all because when the sun goes down, everything goes down. And Jesus said, feed them. Poor Philip. He's sitting there. He must have been the accountant of the group. He's <laughs> Jesus, we couldn't feed these people with 200 penny worth of bread. Now, somebody says, 200 pennies, that's $2. That doesn't even buy a loaf of bread. Well, wait a minute. A penny was a day's wages. So let's put it in context. 200 days wages wouldn't feed all these people. And I promise you, you couldn't get catering for 10,000 people today for that amount of money. No way, no how. Andrew, he was the busy one. He said, Lord, we got lunch. Little boy brought his lunch. Now, I want to ask you a question. Jesus said, we're going to rest. Who did all the work? in the feeding of the 5,000? Jesus did, didn't he? The disciples didn't have to go truck in any food. They didn't have to prepare anything. Jesus prayed. He broke the bread, the fishes. He put it in the baskets. All they had to do was pass it out. And by the way, they made them sit in groups of 50. All they had to do was pass the baskets between the different groups. And then when it was all done, Jesus said, gather up the leftovers so we don't lose anything. And they had more leftover than when they started. Had 12 baskets. Somebody said, why did they have 12 baskets? 
Well, I think Jesus wanted to give the disciples a reminder, each one of them, of what was left over from their time of rest. Now, they didn't think they were resting. But you see, when we rest according to Jesus' plan, he still has things for us to do. If you rest too much, that is, not, that is more harmful to your body than working too much. How many of you knew that? So I'd like to try sometime. Listen, too much rest, your body will deteriorate rapidly. If you laid in bed for a week and didn't get out of bed for a week, you would have to have someone help you get out of bed at the end of the week. You wouldn't be able to stand up, hardly. It would take you several hours if you're well and fit. If you're sick and infirm, it may be a week of rehabilitation before you're able to walk across the room again. This is what happens as we get older and, and things, you don't need that kind of rest, my friend. You need the kind of rest where Jesus is doing all the work and you're serving him. That's the kind of rest that Jesus was talking about. But I want to warn you, the disciples didn't get the message. Go back to Matthew chapter 6. I mean, Mark chapter 6. It said, for they consider not the miracle of the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. So Jesus had to do something else. Sun comes down, they've gathered up the 12 baskets. He said, now get in a boat and go the other side. They said, Lord, we came to... He said, I said, get in a boat and go the... It says he constrained them. I have a feeling Jesus was just one of those guys when he said something. You just kind of got a strange feeling like you ought to do it. Amen. I mean, he was the creator of the universe. And he spoke to those disciples in such a way that, yes, sir, let's go, let's go. Now, how many of you remember what happens next? We're marked back in Matthew chapter 14. It was about sundown, 7.30, 8 o'clock maybe. In the fourth watch, they divided the night from sunset to sunrise into four three-hour periods. So this is the last three hours before sunrise. They've been trying to row the five miles across this lake from 8 o'clock in the evening. It had to be after 4 o'clock in the morning, and they're still in the middle of the lake rowing. Do you think they were tired by now? Do you think they were beyond exhausted trying to figure it? Now Jesus had something else waiting on them. He came out walking on the water. No street lights. All you had was the light of the sun and the moon. It says the wind was blowing, so that means there were clouds moving. So you might get just little glimmers of the moonlight through the clouds and the waves were against them and they're rowing and they're pushing and all of a sudden somebody says, I think I see something and they all start looking. It's a ghost. It was the form of a human being gliding across the water. What are you going to think it is? And those big, brave fishermen were acting like scared little girly men. And by the way, if you'd been there, we've been doing the same thing too. How about you? 
And Jesus calls out to him and says, Fear not, it is I. And what's Peter say? Let's read along here. Let's pick it up. But straightway, verse 27, Matthew chapter 14, But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. Now, never understand this part. And, Pete, and when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Verse 33, here's where we're trying to get to. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. They saw the miracles of feeding the 5,000, but their hearts were hardened because they had other plans. They didn't like what Jesus wanted to do with their lives. You ever met a missionary in Brother Wells that didn't want to be where God had him to be? It's one of the saddest things you ever run into. The disciples were where they were supposed to be. They just didn't want to be there. When Jesus came into the boat after having walked on the water and literally scared them out of their own skins, they weren't worried about where they were. They just wanted to be with Jesus. They worshipped Him. They said, of a truth, thou art the Son of God. It doesn't matter where you are or what's going on around you. If you're where Jesus wants you to be, He will be there and you won't be worried about anything but Jesus. Jesus did everything it took so those disciples could understand who Jesus really is. Amen? One more and we'll be done. Let's go to uh, John chapter 16. This is the night Jesus was betrayed. The next morning he would be crucified. Three days later, he would rise again from the dead. He is on his way to Gethsemane as he is speaking with the disciples. Judas has already left to betray him. The Passover meal, the Last Supper, is already finished. And as Jesus is on the way, he's explaining some things to him. And the disciples, after three and a half years of walking with Jesus, finally get it. Look what they say here in verse 29. John chapter 16. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now, we, now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou cameth forth from God. Now boy, what a statement the disciples are making. They say, now we understand who you are. We understand the message that you are bringing. We understand that you are God in the flesh and you have come to save us. Now look at Jesus' answer. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own. 
and shall leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Verse 33. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Did the disciples have peace that night as Jesus was arrested and dragged out of the Garden of Gethsemane? Uh, every one of them, except Peter and John, ran to hide themselves. And when they ducked into a corner and saw another one, the disciples said, I'm not staying here with you. And they ran and found their own little hiding place they could crawl into. They were so afraid that something bad was going to happen to them. Peter was brave. He followed the guard into the palace of the high priest and sat down at the fire with the very men that had arrested Jesus. I'll tell you what. I don't have that much courage. Peter did. But Peter soon found the end of himself, didn't he? Hey, you're one of them. Me? One of who? One of those followers of Jesus. You're one of his disciples. Jesus? Jesus who had never heard of him. Oh, I must have been mistaken. Next time, somebody, hey, there's one of Jesus' disciples. Me? No, I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. A little louder. Last time, Peter resorted to the only thing Peter knew. It says he began to curse and swear. I imagine being a fisherman, he probably had a pretty good idea of how to do that. Nobody asked him again because Jesus' disciples didn't talk that way. Peter went out and he wept. They were all defeated. They locked the doors on Sunday morning as they gathered together because they were afraid that the scribes and the Pharisees were coming after them. You know, we really do well not to think ourselves too important. I mean, they, they thought they were something. We're Jesus' followers. They came for Jesus. They'll be coming for us. Let me ask you a question. What had the disciples ever done that Jesus didn't do for them and through them? Nothing. Amen? But then came Resurrection Sunday. They started hearing weird things. And Sunday night, as they were gathered trying to figure out what was going on, two men came and said, We met Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and we ran the whole way back. And then Jesus himself showed up. Remember, they were in an upper room on the second floor. They were looking for windows to climb out of. They were scared to death that it was Jesus' spirit. And he said, touch me, handle me. He says, then they had joy. But you see, they weren't ready yet. Jesus spent about 40 days talking with them and teaching them in different places. Then he said, you go back and you wait at Jerusalem until I've empowered you with the Holy Spirit of God. He said, then you'll be ready to serve me. Not a one of the eleven that was there on the day of Pentecost ever looked back again. Jesus had done everything it took so that they could serve God with their lives. And they did. 
every one of them, with the possible exception of John, the writer of the book of Revelation, died a violent and purposeful death, meaning that someone purposed to kill them and got the job done. Yet not a one of them turned back from following the Lord Jesus Christ. It would just be weeks after Pentecost. Peter, James, and John would be in there and they'd be pointing their finger in the face of the high priest and they'd say, you tell me which is better, high priest. Do I obey you or do I obey God? Because I can't do both. You know what? He was, he was just condemning the high priest as not following God. He was right. Where did he get that boldness? He got it because he'd been with Jesus. Amen. Now, let's take just a few moments. If you're here today and you're not saved, I wonder you remember our first story. God did everything so that that woman could put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he's done everything so you can do the same. If you're here today and you're saved, it's easy to get our eyes off Jesus and put them on the wind and the waves. It's easy for us to look at the miracles that God does and harden our hearts and say, don't you understand something, Lord? I need a break. God says that's not the kind of rest you need. Your rest is not going to help you. My rest will build you in the faith. When I'm doing the work and you're serving me, then I'm the one that's going to get the glory and I'll give you the strength to keep going on. But he had to put them in a boat and let them row all night and then walk on the sea and scare them to death before they finally figured out what was going on. Church didn't start on the day of Pentecost, my friend. It was already there. But Jesus empowered his church on the day of Pentecost. He said, now you're ready to serve me my way in my effort. And if you'll do so, I'll keep giving you the strength to go until I'm ready to take you home. Now, this is what the Christian life is about. You got to get saved. You got to keep your eyes on Jesus. And you got to serve Him through His power. Now, this is what they call a shotgun message. There ought not be a person in this room that didn't get something that they need to live on. That was purposeful. But I want to challenge you. No one can move you forward in your spirituality, in your relationship with God, but you. If you're not saved, let me tell you something. We are interested in your salvation at Open Door Bible Baptist Church. We want to do anything we can to help you. Somebody said, Pastor, you're so busy. Listen, my time is about that. Everything else can wait. Because without salvation, you're going to miss eternity. Say, I have too many questions. No, you don't. It's not possible for you to have too many questions because Jesus has already done everything possible to get you saved. Amen? 
Now listen, if you're saved and you're serving God and you've gotten your eyes off the Lord and started worrying about all the things you got to do, let me tell you something. There's a place here called an old-fashioned altar. You can come up and get on your knees and talk to God about that thing. Maybe you just need a new eye appointment, new set of glasses. Maybe you just need to look in the mirror and see what's messed up so you can straighten it out. Amen? But if you're trying to serve God with your own ability, you're going to end up like Peter denying the Lord Jesus Christ. It's got to be His resurrection. That's how you get saved. It's got to be His Holy Spirit. That's how you live. You say, how do I walk in the Spirit? Well, that's real easy. You just go where the Spirit wants you to go. Amen? You just walk with God. You say, how do I know what God wants me to do? Read the Bible. Do you think God wants you to be a goof-off and tell dirty stories and look at all the bad pictures on the way to work tomorrow? Say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, preacher, you stop preaching, that's meddling, isn't it? No, it's how we ought to live. Living the Christian life is not that complicated of a thing. If you don't have a daily Bible reading schedule, we'll get you one. You need to read your Bible. You need to spend time with God. Not going to happen by accident. And it happens when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and Lord, we want you to do your work. We want you to touch hearts and lives. Lord, I don't want to use emotionalism or anything as such. We want people to be drawn to your word. We ask that that would happen today. Lord, we say we want to worship you. We call this our worship service. But without salvation, there is no worship of God. We won't be obedient in confessing our sins and believing on the Savior. There's no, no worship, none at all. We pray for those here today that either are unsure or know that they do not have that relationship with God. That today would at least be another step in the right direction, another time of letting God soften that heart and bring them closer. We pray for those that are just struggling with life because they're trying to do their thing and not God's. We ask that we get our eyes back on Jesus. Lord, I just pray that you would teach us how to live every day under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. Pray you'd give us the humility during this time of invitation to come and confess our sins and our failures and ask you for your strength and obedience to your word. We pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.